0: Thank you, Kristen, for the introduction. And likewise,
1: everyone, thank you for taking the time to attend today's training. I can see that many of you, in fact, almost all of you, have used IPA to perform uh, just a core analysis before. So this is going to focus essentially on some of the deeper features uh, that you can use in IPA to analyze your own data. So to get to that Uh, information, I'm going to go ahead and provide just a brief introduction. I do have the obligatory disclaimer, uh, research use only, please. And during today's presentation, I would love it if you filled out polls or asked any questions you had live in the Q&A box. This Q&A box, again, I'm joined by Kristen and Brittany, and they are both going to answer whatever questions you have live without interrupting the presentation, and then I'll be stopping to take question breaks. As this slide mentions, the recording is also going to be available to watch on demand, and the way to do that is to click the exact same link you used to register. I put this link in the slides just in case you lost it. Unfortunately, you will probably have to re-enter your information, but that will give you access for the next 30 days And this link usually goes live in about two hours. It'll certainly be live by the end of the day. And finally, one thing that I really want to mention, training, assistance, that's all included in your license. So if you have any specific technical questions or you get stuck or there's an error message, our tech support is really fantastic at just getting your problem resolved quickly. But if instead, you're interested in, say, scheduling some sort of one-on-one training or maybe a custom small group training for your uh, research uh, facility, you can go ahead and shoot me an email or Ocean an email. And either way, we will work to make sure that uh, we work with your account manager and get someone to help you out. So since many of you have already done a core analysis in Ingenuity Pathway analysis, you are likely familiar with uh, the overall idea that you start with some sort of data. You don't have to start with data, but if you've done an analysis, it means that you had some sort of comparison, a case versus control. And that could be something like treatment versus no treatment. Or for today's example, uh, I'm showing uh, from uh, an example analysis, tumor versus adjacent non-tumor control. And what IPA will do is it'll look at all of the thousands of differentially expressed genes, and it will use that to calculate both the enrichment of potential pathways, upstream regulators, downstream targets and diseases, but also the activity predictions of those pathways. One thing that I really like doing is creating this volcano-style bubble plot. And today, one of the things that I want to show you how to uh, create is this plot. Because unlike the traditional bar chart, sometimes it's really nice to see exactly how the p-value of enrichment, which is this vertical axis, compares to the confidence in our activation or inhibition uh, assignment for these pathways. And because of that, this can help highlight some of these pathways on the extreme right or left of the plot, because those are pathways that, although they may not have had as many annotated genes, they certainly are all moving in uh, the same or similar direction to enact uh, a biological program or activity. So prioritizing pathways, figuring out, okay, which of these tens of pathways do I wanna look at I think can become a lot easier when using this sort of volcano plot and just looking beyond this leading edge. In addition to the canonical pathways, many of you have looked at upstream regulators, but something that IPA can also do is combine uh, various upstream regulators to try to find either the mechanistic networks for how multiple regulators might work together, or also to find potential causal relationships linking those upstream master regulators with disease. So for today's example, SMAD7 would be an example of a potential upstream regulator. But if we look at the mechanistic network, this feature here kind of hiding on the right, that can let us identify what shared downstream targets might exist in your data set and how other potential regulators might work together to modify or uh, otherwise control their activity. In addition, I mentioned causal networks. Causal networks, again, are a feature in IPA that let you look upstream of potential genes to find potential master regulators. In this case, HDAC1 is a potential regulator upstream of SMAD7 on the previous slide. And this particular regulator, it turns out there are a few different paths that we can look for to link it to endometrial carcinoma. So to link it to the disease state, when you set up the analysis, you just have to specify that you want to have that causal network created. And when doing so, IPA will try to find causal networks that in addition to uh, linking together all of your upstream regulators, also have clear paths between the upstream regulator and your disease of interest. Finally, network building. So if you happen to look at this network, you can see that what IPA is proposing is HDAC1 might work through TP73 or LCN2 to influence P10 activity, which then influences uh, endometrial carcinoma activity. Within IPA, you can really easily take any of those nodes and create a network to answer all sorts of questions. And you can use your own real data, or you can rely on uh, predicted activity. So for this example, what I'll show today is how you can take a simple network, in this case, those four proteins plus our disease of interest and ask what are all of the upstream targets and all of the downstream targets for each of these factors? And of those targets, does the expression from the observed data match what you would expect for the activity predicted in the causal network analysis? And in today's example, there is Evidence supporting that HDAC1 is likely to be active, LCN2 is likely to be inhibited, P10 is likely to be inhibited, and thus endometrial carcinoma activity should be up, which we would expect in a tumor versus normal data set. However, the evidence does not support TP73 activation. Instead, the evidence from this particular experiment suggests that TP73 is likely to be inhibited. So just by overlaying this data, we were able to test this hypothesis that IPEA gave us when looking at causal networks. And from that, we are able to have a better, more refined idea of what experiments to test out in the lab or what potential biomarkers might be worth following up on. So today, I'll focus on how to generate those views. That said, As you can imagine, there's a lot of different things that you can do in IPA. So what Kristen has just launched is an illustration feedback poll. Basically, I want to know if these were the things that you were hoping to learn today. And if not, we should have enough time to go a little off script. So if you have a different type of analysis or feature that you would like us to cover, go ahead and mention that in the Q&A box, and we can go ahead and see about covering that or weaving it into today's story. Otherwise, I'll go ahead and get started with just a super quick introduction where I want to just give a refresher on the IPA core analysis basics, especially for those in the audience that are newer to IPA. So. IPA and other Kaiogen Digital Insights products are backed by expert curated data. What this means is we have scientists who are reading publications and using controlled vocabulary to define findings. And those findings could be the research findings, the relationships between different nodes, like how do proteins interact with each other? or what are the relationships between a protein and a drug or the eventual effect on a disease? We also curate omics data, and that means we take the time to reprocess RNA-seq and microarray data in the public domain, normalize it and use that same controlled vocabulary to make it cross-searchable. And together, those data form the basis of ingenuity pathway analysis, as well as our OmicSoft lens. And within IPA, we keep those relationships up to date. In fact, for journal articles, we license the full text and we update those relationships on a weekly basis. We also update various clinical databases and clinical trial databases, drug information. Those will get updated on a quarterly basis. And because of that, we're currently approaching, if not over 13 million findings currently stored in this database and ready to access. And because we've been doing this for 20 years, it means that we have the ability to construct these networks and look at directional changes. Because for example, if we're looking at the finding that we curated of EGF and EGFR, this is suggesting that EGF activates EGFR, and with that, we can look at potential changes based on this and other findings, and when we simulate a change, in this case, we simulate an increase in this drug, which inhibits EGFR, we can then predict the downstream effects, and those were are showing in orange and blue. All of these connections are backed by literature. So another thing that IPA makes it really easy to do is you can always click on these relationships to pull up the finding, both as a plain, natural language summary, as well as a link that directly goes to the citations. So IPA happens to take your data, in this case, your case versus control data. And it lets you look at a number of different things. The canonical pathways or the pathways tab is where you would look to see how the biology might be changing in your condition. So if you are looking at a disease versus normal, are there pathways which are increased in activity uh, during disease? And are there pathways that might be inhibited or potentially down in activity? Uh, due to the disease. Those predictions will always be shown in orange for a potential activation or blue for a potential inhibition. And the stronger the score, the more confident we are in that direction. In addition to looking at the curated pathways, we're also taking advantage of that knowledge base to look for upstream regulators, any proteins or chemicals that have known connections to the genes in your data set. And again, just like all of our other analyses, these are going to be based on the actual observed changes, which will always be shown in red for an observed increase or green for an observed decrease. And finally, we can also use these same genes in your data set to look to see if there are any potential downstream diseases or functions that might be activated or inhibited, as well as enriched. So what that looks like for canonical pathways would be, say, this default bar chart. Here I'm showing it as a vertical bar chart, though uh, our new default has it as a horizontal. But essentially, every pathway is scored by both a p-value, which is just simply the enrichment of the genes within, shown vertically here, as well as a activity score prediction, which we call a z-score. And again, those are shown in shades of orange or blue. And the darker the color, the more confident we are that that direction assignment is what's happening. So if your observed changes match those curated expectations, that's when we assign a positive z-score. So these expectations, the values we expect for the pathway to have whenever it's activated, are based on literature. And we can also open any of those pathways that we select to get a better view. So in this case, if we wanted to look more closely at, uh, let's say, this uh, mitochondrial pathway where we're looking at respiration, we can see which complexes are predicted to be up or down, and also which individual enzymes within are predicted to be activated or inhibited. Upstream analysis is The same type of calculation, except we're no longer limited to just pathways that we or other consortia like Reactome have curated. And this lets us go off script and look through our entire knowledge base to see, based on the genes that were significantly up or down, does an upstream factor that we know about have an enrichment of connections? So CBX5, for example, is appearing because a significant number of targets were identified as significant in this comparison. And on top of that, we are predicting that CBX5 is likely to be activated because this protein normally inhibits many of these downstream targets. And whenever there's an inconsistency, we'll highlight that in yellow. In addition to looking upstream, We also take all of those genes to look downstream. And this is where we can look at things like biological functions, say chemotaxis, which we expect to be inhibited potentially in this tumor versus normal comparison. So IPA is doing all of this with your comparison data. In other words, this could be your differential expression, If you happen to be doing chip sequencing, you might instead have a list of promoters that are increased in occupancy or decreased in occupancy. So either way, you need a list of genes and a list of up or down values, and ideally some sort of statistical p-value as well. So how do you get that? Because IPA uses process results, you do have to do your own secondary analysis. And that can be done using a variety of tools like DESeq. We also have a really powerful and easy to use solution called CLC Genomics Workbench. This comprehensive program really does a great job of handling all of those really interesting uh, data types, including long read sequencing and a single cell. So we have a link to the trial in the slides. However, something that we also are trying to build is an online RNA-seq analysis portal. And importantly, we're looking for licensed IPA users who wanna test out access to this feature directly from within IPA. So if you have an IPA license and you're interested in using a simple online portal to perform your differential expression analysis and immediately send it to IPA, and to have all of this work from within IPA, the program, and your web browser, feel free to sign up. And otherwise, uh, we hope to get that feature launched later this year. So that was essentially the quick introduction for what IPA does and what most people seem to expect out of a core analysis. So next, I want to go ahead and show some of these more in-depth features. So to do that, first, I'm going to focus on those canonical pathway results and show how to prioritize them. And this will give us a chance to look in depth at what is a prediction. Once we look at those canonical pathways, I will also go ahead and look at causal networks and mechanistic networks. And then finally, we'll go ahead and spend the rest of our time looking at how to build and modify networks to get the most information out of your data. So again, for today's example, uh, I happen to be using an endometrial carcinoma data set that is available within our training. So everyone should have access to this. So if you're just following along, that is completely fine. Please ask questions if you are confused. But if you would like to join in, you can do so by going to the projects folder, expanding the training, expanding analyses, and then there will be this EEC mRNA RPKM20 study, which has three already analyzed samples. And here, what I'm going to do is just open patient number 46. So again, you'll find that under training, analyses, EEC mRNA RPKM 20, and then P46. And that way, when I just double click that study, this should open up and let me look at the core analysis results as they were run in IPA. So once here, the first thing that most people will be interested in are going to be those pathways. So I'm going to go ahead and start in this canonical pathways tab. And here, when I open this, you can see that by default, IPA has loaded this bar chart view. And the organization for these pathways is by p-value. And we can also see shading corresponding to potential activation, or inhibition prediction scores. So here, for an example, if I'm looking at this sirtuin signaling pathway, I can see that it is definitely enriched. But I can also see that it has a Z-score of negative 3.5, which is a pretty significant and confident uh, assignment of prediction that this pathway should be inhibited in our tumor versus normal condition. However, if you look a little bit further down, you'll notice some pathways are gray. And then we also have this acute phase response signaling pathway, which is less enriched, but has an even more significant z-score of negative 3.9. If I wanted to look at this pathway, I would normally just click on this pathway. This would show me exactly what genes were expected to go up normally to activate this pathway, and that's going to be compared with the actual measurements. And whenever there is a mismatch in this expected direction, that means IPA is going to predict that there is likely to be inhibition. So because these genes are normally up when a pathway is activated, and they are in fact down in our condition, that means IPA is going to overwhelmingly predict a negative z-score. And anything with a z-score of greater than or less than 2, we typically consider significant, though you can usually figure that out quickly with the bubble chart. So in this case, that would be an obvious example of something that you could just glance and probably prioritize. But if you're scrolling around, you might also have things like this oncostatin m signaling pathway, where you're not sure whether or not you should look at it, or even some of these smaller ones like IL-6 signaling. So as an example, if I click on this IL-6 signaling, it also has a very significant negative Z-score, suggesting inhibition of this pathway. But it doesn't have as many genes or proteins that were significantly detected by your experiment. So, Is this a significant pathway? IL-6 signaling certainly should be, given its role in the immune response to cancer. And if we open this pathway, I think we'll find fairly overwhelmingly that this should be inhibited. And here, what I'm doing just to tweak the view is if I go to the overlay analyses tool, here, one of the problems with this example data set is there are some very extreme fold change ranges. So I want to change the scale to, say, negative five-fold and positive five-fold change, just to make it a bit more obvious which genes were, in fact, up or down. And you can see that fairly consistently, IPA is predicting that IL1 uh, and STAT3, in this case, not predicting, uh, the observation shows that STAT3 and IL1 and and fos are down. And because of that, IPA is predicting as a downstream consequence, IL-6 should be down in activity. Regarding the question of what it means when a prediction might be inconsistent, as an example, IPA is assuming that erk one and erk 2 are likely to be active. And the reason that IPA is making that assumption is if we look closely we can see that MAP2 kinase 1 and 2 were observed to be up in our tumor versus normal. So MAP2 kinase normally activates ERK1 and 2. And if we click this relationship and double click it, we can see that that is very well cited. There are 198 findings supporting activation of ERK1 and 2 by MAP kinase. However, Even though we're confident that ERK1 and 2 are active, this kinase normally activates and phosphorylates CEBPB, which we are seeing is down and observed to be down in our experiment. So because of that, this is considered to be an inconsistency. Because We are more confident that ERK1 and 2 is active because the overwhelming evidence linking MAP2 kinase with ERK1 and 2 activity. So we'll highlight that inconsistency in yellow. And you can always click on the bar and double click to pull up these findings. And when you look at those complete details, you can also click on this link, which will Load a web page where you can access all of the details. So, this website here is giving me all of the activation and the phosphorylation citations, and I can see uh, when these articles were published, who wrote them, and also get links to PubMed. So, this is one pathway. This one pathway seems to be inhibited. But again, that is just one pathway out of many. And prioritizing these pathways is perhaps uh, not the easiest thing to do. So going to the slides, what I want to show you is how to create a volcano-style bubble chart. The slides will have step-by-step instructions. So please feel free to download those slides and save them as a reference. But what I'm going to do next on screen is first I'll change the chart type. So in my example, I have a vertical bar chart. It could be horizontal bar chart or anything else. But what we want to do is change it to a bubble chart. Once that change happens, we're going to have this type of view where pathways are now organized with p-value on the horizontal and pathway categories on the vertical, which isn't necessarily uh, useful, but we can still tweak that by going to customize chart. So once we're at customized chart from within a bubble chart, that's where the magic happens because this is where we have a chart type that lets us change the y and x-axis. And what that means is we can change the vertical axis to correspond to our p-value. And we can change the horizontal axis to correspond to our z-score. And what this will do is result in a chart of pathways that very closely will resemble your uh, volcano plots when you're looking at differential expression. And so this would wind up being the result we would expect, where we can see some of these pathways. In this case, I've taken a screenshot or an image export of that pathway chart, and I went ahead and manually labeled them in PowerPoint. That's the one downside of this feature. It's maybe not the easiest to create an instantly usable figure, but this should intuitively show you that these pathways are absolutely of interest Sirtuin signaling is absolutely of interest, but we also have some of these pathways down in the bottom left, which are also likely to be of interest. So here, let's go ahead and do that using our actual data. So again, I'm looking at the canonical pathways view from within a core analysis. The first thing that I need to do is I need to go to change the chart type. And the reason I have to do this first is because the options we want are only available in bubble chart. So if I change that to bubble chart, this plot will now instead show this view where I have the p-value as a horizontal and I have these categories as a vertical. This can be handy if you want to show uh, certain trends in various pathway categories and curation categories. But if you want to focus on the pathways individually, instead, I'm going to click on this Customize Chart button. And when I click on Customize Chart, we have a number of really handy tools. The tools we are going to use today are just changing the Y and the X axis, but something else you might notice and want to experiment with in your free time is the ability to activate or remove pathways from your view or filter for pathways that only include genes of interest. So for example, if you were only interested in pathways that contain members of the uh, interleukin family, I could say something like include IL star and then scroll down and hit apply. And that will only show pathways containing an IL protein, which is super handy or super cool if that's what you're interested in. But here I'm going to go ahead and just undo that change. And what I want to do is instead I want to focus on this y and x-axis. And the changes I want are for the vertical to be p-value of enrichment, just like a volcano plot where the vertical p-value corresponds to significance of change. And then this x-axis the distance from the horizontal zero, that distance is going to represent how confident we are that that given pathway is activated or inhibited. So again, p-value for the y-axis, z-score for the x-axis. And when we scroll down, we will have the ability to apply that. And that will result in this plot where we can very clearly see and hover to look at these individual pathways. And this is where, for example, I can see that potential pathways of interest might actually be this dendritic cell maturation pathway, since it has a very significant z-score. The colorectal uh, cancer metastasis signaling pathway, nitric oxide and reactive oxygen species and macrophages IL-6 signaling, these are also likely important. But just focusing on, say, one of these, I can go ahead and click the pathway, and that's going to load the table below. And once I have that table loaded up, if I want to, I can open the pathway just like the other view. And this is where I can get a sense for Uh, whether or not this pathway is likely to be up or down. And again, I just want to go to overlay analyses to change this legend. So instead of the dark shade of green being a negative 700 fold, I can change this to something like negative five or negative 10 fold. And that will help make this a bit easier to see. So this is where we can see that pretty overwhelmingly, the activity in this pathway matches expectations for inhibition. So just to summarize what we did, the first thing we did is we changed the chart type from horizontal bar chart or vertical bar chart, and we changed it to a bubble chart. We then went to the customize chart button, where we have a number of tools to change what we're looking at. And what we did is we changed the vertical to p-value and the horizontal to z-score. And you do have to scroll down, but this will let you apply your changes. And if for whatever reason you want to go back, you can also reset to default. So here, if I click reset to default, this is going to just change this back to the default settings for bubble chart. And then if I want to change it back to that vertical or horizontal bar chart, I can go ahead and change the chart type again. So in summary, when looking at these pathways, I find that it's really handy to prioritize them both by p value. So of course, anything at the top of this chart is likely to be interesting, but also by z-score. Because anything that's exceeding a very negative threshold or a very positive threshold, those are likely to be interesting. So for example, I might look at these three activated pathways, even though they're not very enriched. And I might look at these six inhibited pathways, also, even though they might not be extremely enriched, because they're still above the significance threshold, and they definitely have... Changes in activity. And just to show the view for those statistics, this is just a really handy slide where I'm showing what we typically consider to be significant, both for the enrichment p value, which is where we're looking for overrepresented genes or proteins in these given pathways or networks, and for the predicted activity, where we are looking for scores of two or greater. With that, I think now is a great time to pause and see if there are any questions that we can answer live.
0: Thank you so much, Kyle. Some good stuff so far. So one thing uh, before we take some questions is I just launched another poll. So we're just checking to make sure that the speed of the training is, is good and then some additional questions here. So if you could fill that out, that would be wonderful. Um, One of the questions that came up is, within that pathway view, so when you were showing the network map of a pathway, if a gene does not pass the threshold to be included in the analysis, but it was imported, will the numbers be uh, colored green or red?
1: That's a great question. So for that answer, those genes would normally be shown in a gray color. But you have the ability to override that view and force it to show a color. So here, I'm just going to grab a pathway as an example. I'm going to grab this mitochondrial dysfunction pathway. And this is a pathway where we don't necessarily know how to call it up or down an activity, so we don't even try. It's because this is a very complicated pathway. And if I go ahead and go again to that overlay and analyses, data sets, and list section, this is where I can tweak that color scale. And I'm going to do negative 10 to positive 10 fold just to make it a bit easier to see which genes are up and which genes are down. And this is where you can see, like you were mentioning, there are some genes like PARC7 or TARDBP that don't have a color assigned to them, and that color is instead being shown as gray. Those are examples of genes that didn't pass the analysis statistical threshold. So whenever you set up an analysis, we usually recommend you take, uh, let's say anywhere from 100 to 3000 genes, but you should have some sort of cutoff. Because if you've ever watched The Incredibles, if everyone is special, no one is special. So if everything is thrown into your analysis, nothing will be enriched. If you have these genes where they might be significant, they might be up or down, but just not significantly, you can always force them to show a color with this ignore, an ignore analysis cutoff button. So here, if I click ignore analysis cutoff, I can see that park seven was actually observed to increase slightly and TARDBP was observed to go down slightly. However, both of those genes were not significant based on the cutoffs we chose. So if we use those cutoffs, those will instead be shown as gray.
0: Excellent, thank you so much. Um, While we're on this view, actually, one of the questions that typically comes up a lot is there's lots of shapes and colors and lines and all of that on these network maps. Is there a place where folks can go to figure out what all of this stuff means?
1: Uh, Yes, there is. So if you're looking at this kind of plot and you find yourself very quickly overwhelmed, if you go to the help menu, we actually have a link to the legend. So here, if I go to help, legend is going to be one of those default links. In fact, we even have a keyboard shortcut for it. And if you click on that legend, that will open a web page, which you can leave bookmarked, you can print this out. This will give you an overview of what all the shapes mean, and also what the acronyms are for the relationship types. uh, What are the relationship arrows? So if you see one of the more infrequent arrows, like this translocation arrow, uh, you'll know what does it mean. And then also, this helps explain the colors and other
0: tags. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. Um, How about uh, do we have any resources to help folks get started with things like uploading their own metabolomics data or starting out with a. Um, with an analysis on their own?
1: That is a great question. Um, To answer, we do try to make that documentation and those resources as easy as possible to find. So if you're using a feature, you'll find these little help icons littered throughout our software. And they're breadcrumbs that help take you immediately to the documentation for a feature that might be confusing. So for example, if I was looking at that overlay analysis tool, I can click that question mark in that pane to see exactly what these options are and what they do. However, for just starting out from scratch, you can also just go to the help and support which is under the help menu. We also have a link to various tutorials or video tutorials. So here, if I go to that help and support, this is going to bring me to a page where I can easily search for anything in the IPA or those tutorials and trainings. I can click on this tutorials and trainings link to see examples of metabolomics, phosphoproteomics, microRNA analyses, all sorts of things.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much. So one more question before I hand it back over to you, Kyle. Uh, Since this information is updating frequently, if we need to regenerate a chart from several months ago, is there a way to set seed?
1: So I don't think there is a way to set the seed, but there is a very easy way to rerun the analysis using the latest curation information. So let's say, for example, I have this analysis that I ran apparently uh, in February, or sorry, apparently last month in December, uh, almost 30 days ago. If you right click, you can always rerun an analysis, which will go ahead and recalculate everything. In addition, whenever you happen to be looking at any kind of analysis, if a given network happens to have new potential knowledge or connections it'll actually let you know on screen that there is uh, this pathway was in fact updated.
0: Excellent, all right. So one last thing, I will be sharing the link for today's slides um, in the chat box. And if you guys have any questions, um, please definitely utilize that Q&A box. It helps us keep track of these questions so we can take it for the live breaks. So without further ado, I'll give it back to you, Kyle. Thank you. And
1: also just a reminder to everyone, um, if you do get confused or you see something that you're interested in, but you want help implementing it, let us know. Training is definitely included in your license. My job is to help you out. So for the next part of the presentation, I'm going to briefly describe and discuss uh, some of the more powerful ways to look at upstream regulators. So first, what is an upstream regulator? An upstream regulator in this case is anything that could potentially control the genes that were significantly up or down in your data. So here, this example, these five genes or proteins passed cutoff. And what IPA will do is ask, are there any upstream regulators that target all of these? What are the upstream regulators for each one of these proteins? And based on those curated connections, we will identify potential regulators, and then we will ask whether or not that is a significant enrichment. So for example, if I have a random upstream protein and it targets, let's say 50 or 60 things, but only one of them is significant, from your observed change, that is not going to appear because it's not significant. So these are only going to appear if there is enrichment of these downstream targets in your observation. Once we've identified them, we will then predict their activity. And those activity predictions are going to be based again on the observed changes in your case versus control. So. For today's example, I'm using tumor versus adjacent non-tumor control. In other words, disease versus normal. So if these three genes are down in our tumor versus normal and this one gene is up, what IPA is going to ask is what is the normal activity? So normally this upstream item inhibits these two and activates these two. And because of that, whenever we see that these two are down, we are assuming that, in fact, these uh, connections are happening uh, in the assumed direction. Likewise, this upregulated gene matches the expectation for activation. The only thing that doesn't is this particular gene appears to be inhibited even though we would normally expect it to be active if this upstream regulator was up. So what that means is we are going to overwhelmingly, three out of four factors agree, this is likely to be activated. And the inconsistency, again, we always highlight those in yellow. So that's how we look at and assign z-scores to upstream regulators. However, what about situations where these particular genes might connect to each other, what can we find from linked upstream regulators? And that's where we're looking for mechanistic networks. For this particular concept, I have included a link here in the slides for additional details on what is a mechanistic network, because even I will get confused at this sometimes. So here, I'll just go ahead and paste that link into the chat, and then we'll go ahead and dig deeper into what these mechanistic networks look like. So in IPA, what I'm going to do is I'm first going to look at these upstream analyses. And whenever I'm looking at potential upstream factors, As I mentioned for pathways, usually everything everything here has some sort of enrichment. So what I'm looking for is really confident activation and inhibition predictions. So I like sorting these by z-score. And that's where I can identify, say, potentially strongly inhibited upstream items like IL-1B or I can identify potentially active upstream items like MIC. And once I do that, another feature that you'll likely notice is there are many different types of upstream regulators, including drugs, which could result in the biological profile we see. So if we want to focus on a specific type of upstream molecule or node, we can go to this filter, and we can filter for things like just genes, RNAs, and proteins. And that way, we are only looking at potential transcription factors, kinases, regulatory proteins, and we can ignore the drugs and chemicals. And when I select that, that will simplify this list. Now, the next question that you might have is you might be curious about looking at a particular activity, or you might be interested in a set of potential downstream targets. So as an example, when I showed the introduction, I mentioned that this data set had a observed decrease Uh, or a predicted decrease in chemotaxis. So if chemotaxis is down, I might want to look at potential cytokines. So let's say I go and click this filter to filter target molecules in the data. So these are the downstream targets that are leading to the predicted upstream regulators. So this is where I can easily type in something like CCL and then add an asterisk. And when I hit apply, that's going to help me filter just for things that are targeting those cytokines. And that's where I can see that one of the most upregulated or predicted to be up items is this SMAD7 transcription factor. If I simply display this as a network, as an upstream regulator, what this is going to do is it's going to just show the immediate downstream targets of SMAD7 that were up or down in the data, which, don't get me wrong, is extremely handy. However, SMAD7 doesn't act in a vacuum. It instead works with a number of other regulators to enact its effects. And that's what these mechanistic networks are. So here, as an example, For SMAD7, I have these two numbers. There are 588 dataset genes that are downstream of this collection of regulators. And IPA thinks that 16 regulators are working together to affect those targets. So rather than looking at just the simple SMAD7 network, instead we can click this mechanistic network link on the right-hand side to see all of the related items that might be working together. Whenever you open this kind of network, IPA is at first only going to load the 16 regulators. So in this case, everything here, this is IPA's prediction for how things might be working together. The reason that we're not seeing the downstream targets is because 588 of them, if I selected all of these and added them to the network, that would get very complicated very fast. You can certainly do it. It's just that uh, you might instead want to focus on just a certain molecule type. So again, for these downstream targets, you can always sort them to see what are the most extreme examples apparently we have a negative 6,000 fold change for this gene, whatever that means, or a CXCL14. So if we click on any protein, we can always highlight it and then add it to the network. In fact, here, this is the notice that you get whenever if content changes, you might have more connections than when the analysis was last run. This is where you get this warning that there is updated information if you rerun the analysis. But here, again, I just went ahead and stuck CXCL14 on this network, and this is where IPA is showing that it thinks that CXCL14 is controlled by uh, CTN and B1, STAT3, and EGFR. If I want to instead add all cytokines, this is where it can be really handy to click on this molecule type filter. So just like before, when we clicked on that filter and selected all genes, RNAs, and proteins, we can also specify a very detailed type of protein. So some of you may only be interested in kinases or proteases Uh, here. I'm interested in cytokines because I wanna focus on cellular movement. So if I filter for just cytokines, this is going to give me a much more reasonable list of 16 downstream targets. And I can always just highlight all 16 of these and click add to network. And that's going to show me how these items are connected. And when I do that, there are a few visual tweaks that I'm going to want to make to allow this to be a bit easier for us to see. One change that I'm going to make is I'm going to alter the transparency of these connection lines, because as you can see, I can't actually see the protein names under these lines. So if I click this Path Tracer button, This is where I can choose to fade uh, edges and choose how visible I want those connections to be. I can also choose this fade distant nodes if I want to focus on just one connection. The other thing I want to do is I just want to check the visual scale for these genes. Because CXCL14 was something like negative 3,000 fold different. So I want to have the scale more accurately uh, convey up or down. And I can do that with the overlay tab. This is where we're overlaying data. And because we are overlaying the analysis results, if I click that overlay analysis function, I can see that I am overlaying that patient 46 tumor versus normal data. And if I happen to scroll down, this is where I'll find the ability to change the range for the color bars. And I can also show the numerical value on screen. So here, I'll just set this to negative 10 and 10 for fold change. And when I do that, this is going to become a lot easier to see relatively speaking how up or down some of these might be. In fact, I might even change the scale to be a little bit more sensitive and use something like 20 fold. And then I can always click show value, which is going to show the fold change value below each individual item, including the items that might be participating in this predicted regulatory network. So for example, here, I can see that STAT3 is slightly down. June is about fourfold down. NF-kappa-B, IA is 10-fold down. CEBPB is negative six-fold down. So those predictions are, in fact, lining up with the reality uh, that was observed in this data set. So just summarizing, this is where we went ahead, and rather than looking just at the SMAD7 immediate downstream targets, of which there are definitely a few. Instead, we wanted to show how SMAD7 might work with other regulators to influence a large number of genes observed in your experiment. And by doing that, this is where we have a more comprehensive network of how SMAD7 might be working with other SMAD proteins to influence various cytokines. If we want to export this, we can very easily do that by exporting this as an image. If you choose this option, you can choose the file format, including vector options, if you would like to edit these later in Illustrator. And you can also choose what resolution to export as. I like doing overkill exports at 150 dpi, but 96, the default is plenty for PowerPoints. So again, just to super quickly summarize, here we're looking at upstream regulators that are important for targeting CCL downstream targets. And by sorting by z-score and then filtering for just genes, I was able to quickly find SMAD7 as a potential upstream regulator. And here I can see that INSR, a kinase, might also be a relevant upstream regulator as well. Although SMAD7 directly influences 47 downstream targets, It in fact has a broader impact on our data where it's influencing something like 600 proteins through a network of 16 regulators. And if we want to see that mechanistic network, we just have to focus on the right side and click on this link. And what that will open is this network of potential regulators, as well as a table of all of the downstream targets And those targets, we can selectively choose which ones we want to display based on filters. Or if you're crazy, you can highlight everything and click add to network. And what this will do is if it's able to, it will throw them all on screen. There are limits to the number of connections you can show on screen, both in terms of the software stability and also in terms of your own sanity. This is not going to be uh, easy to look at anytime soon, but you can do it. And going back to the slides, this is where I have step by step instructions for what we just did together. So, again, this is where rather than looking just at the immediate targets, we are looking at the mechanistic relationships between these multiple regulators and how they can influence, uh, in this case, cytokines, as well as other proteins. The next tool for upstream regulators is causal networks. And causal networks are a really interesting tool because they let you find potential paths for these upstream linked networks of regulators and how they might be linked to a particular disease. So here, the causal network section is actually the tab next to upstream regulators in the upstream analysis section. And to highlight that, this is where I'm going to go ahead and choose to go back to the software. And I'm going to go ahead and click this causal networks section within upstream analysis. And when looking at these, there will be a number of potential sections. First, there are going to be the potential causal networks that correspond to what happens when you glue together multiple regulators. So here, you can see that some of these are a depth of 2 or a depth of 3. You can sort these by z-score to see what the most extreme active or inhibited items might be. And this is where you are then able to further filter down. One of the other tools, though, that I love pointing out is we have an additional section here on the right that is influenced by how you set up your analysis. So for example, what I'm showing here is potential paths to endometrial carcinoma. And the reason that I'm able to see that is because when I set up this analysis, One of the settings that I set was under networks. When you're creating your analysis, you can change the network setting and add a causal network calculation to a disease or to a gene or network node. And these will be scored and shown in the causal networks tab. So again, when you're setting up your analysis, Normally, it's a great idea to leave these settings as default, but if you want to look for additional causal connections between your relationships and a particular disease or factor of interest, you can tell IPA to look for those connections in a guided manner. And if you do, under upstream analysis and causal networks, you'll have additional tabs here at the right. So first, we were just looking at SMAD7. And SMAD7 could be a really cool regulator. So I am interested in looking at potential master regulators of SMAD7. So what I'm doing is I'm going to this participating regulators menu, and I'm filtering for SMAD7. And when I do this, I now have a very small number of potential regulator networks. So I have HDAC1, SMAD7 itself is a master regulator. YY1 is a very interesting transcription factor that in this case is neither up or down, but if you're interested in super enhancers, uh, that's definitely a target of interest. And apparently we have potential inhibition of RLIM, an enzyme. So if I wanted to look at any one of these, I could. But something else that's really cool about these is I can also see whether or not any of these have specific known links to the endometrial cancer uh, disease type. So here, for example, I have downstream or decrease upstream and increase upstream columns. And this is showing that there are a number of paths that HDAC1 could increase endometrial carcinoma. So if I click on that link, this is going to show me in this particular window what some of those paths might be. So this is very similar to the previous screen where we showed all of the potential targets downstream In this case, there's 471 downstream targets, but what we're interested in looking at are these paths because this path section is where we are showing potential links between HDAC and the disease of interest. And if I add all of these to this particular network, that's where I can see potential links between HDAC1 TP73, LCN2, and P10, which might influence endometrial carcinoma. I can also see that P10 activity does have an additional connection with KDM1A, which is downstream of HDAC1. So, this is a potentially interesting set of regulators that might in concert influence endometrial carcinoma activity. And this is just one of any many of these potential regulators. So for example, I didn't look at this YY1 in advance, but I'm actually curious how it could potentially increase or decrease this particular cancer type. So I'm going to load that upstream network as well. So BAP1, once again, is a potential connection. Also, once again, P10 is a potential connection. And so this is where I can see whether or not these potentially increase the effects. This is where I can see potential links between YY1 and HSPA5 and BRCA1 through P10, potentially increasing endometrial carcinoma activity. So these causal networks are a potentially really interesting way to find these interesting potential connections. And you can look at both potential increases and potential decreases. So for example, if we thought that there might be a particular decrease of the cancer activity, instead we would click on this decrease upstream link which would then give us a number of paths that might lead to the opposite effect. So for example, if we were interested in inhibiting endometrial carcinoma, we would still be interested in looking at controls through P10. But now we would be looking through EGR1, uh, NFKBIA, et cetera. We can also see that many of these paths are not necessarily well supported. There are a lot of inconsistencies. And that's because we're looking at tumor versus normal, so endometrial carcinoma should in fact be up in reality. So causal networks, again, they are a very interesting and potentially powerful tool where if you set your causal networks up during your analysis creation, IPA can help find those additional connections to look at these links between these potential master regulators and the item downstream that you're interested in. And here, again, I am just pasting a link to that help document because this is a potentially complex uh, feature, which even I sometimes will get confused about. But what we did to get here was we went to causal networks within our upstream analyses. I filtered for just SMAD7 networks, networks that contained SMAD7 as a participating regulator. And that's where I found potential regulators with HDAC1 or YY1. I then focused on just those that had paths for upstream regulators that could increase downstream cancer activity because we're looking at a disease versus normal where cancer, in fact, went up in activity. So I wanted to focus on those upstream increases uh, for the effect on cancer. And that's where I found potential networks for uh, sirtuin, for LCN2 and for TP73 and how they might influence endometrial carcinoma. So this is where we are going to shift into how to validate that kind of hypothesis. But before I do, I want to stop one more time and see if there are any questions that I can help answer.
0: Awesome, thank you so much, Kyle. So once again, I'll be launching another poll just to check in with you guys to see, you know, based on today's training, what do you think about IPA? Do you think it's gonna be valuable? A couple questions uh, pertaining to the layout of those networks that you were showing. Is there a way to quickly sort those uh, network maps to figure out where things live inside the cell?
1: Yes, so that's a great question. So let's say you have a complicated network on screen like this one here. Something that you can do to change that network we have a few controls located here. I already showed this option to change the translucency of the various edges, but what I didn't show is this change layout button. And using that button, this is where I have the ability to change the layout to any of these presets, some of which are particularly useful. So for example, Here, if I just set this to organic, IPA is going to try to just arrange these in a reasonable manner. Circular may or may not be useful. Radial, again, a very potentially useful option. Hierarchical will arrange these items in a way that will hopefully result in a clear cut network from point A to point B. And in fact, it did a great job here. And then finally, the option in question the subcellular feature. This one is very popular because pretty much no matter what your layout was or whatever nodes are on screen, by going to change layout and subcellular, it will group everything into the various compartments. So we can see how things might influence the plasma membrane proteins or act in the cytoplasm to in turn change transcription activity in the nucleus. And then we have the other category on the side for drugs or hormones like estrogen, as well as for diseases, because this is not something that is uh, otherwise uh, categorizable.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. And then actually one follow up question um, for this would be, you know, we see things in the plasma membrane, cytoplasm nucleus. Is there a way to say, um, figure out which of these are mitochondrial targets?
1: Ooh, that is a very good question. So to answer that, I'm pretty sure the best place to look at would be to overlay other data resources. So overlay, this is where we can overlay not only the uh, expression values from our own data, but we can also overlay. Additional information about biomarkers or subcellular locations, or maybe even the cell type or tissue that some of these factors might be uh, acting in. Here, if I overlay subcellular location, this is where I'm just seeing whether or not there are any proteins that might be associated with mitochondrial activity. And I can see that of the proteins, it looks like STK11 and NFKBIA would be the two most likely uh, proteins to participate in the mitochondria. Whether or not that's where these are in fact acting, that's something that would have to be experimentally determined.
0: Fabulous, thank you so much for showing us that. So once again, I'm gonna paste today's uh, slides in the chat box and I am gonna hand it back over to you, Kyle.
1: Awesome, thank you. And while I'm here, I'm actually just clicking that cell and tissue overlay because I'm kind of curious if there happens to be uh, a potential uh, cell type. And it looks like uh, many of these are uh, enriched for, many of these genes on screen are enriched for reproductive system cells. So cool. I see that there is one last minute question. uh, And that is, if you wanted to include this kind of figure and uh, wanted to cite it, uh, how would you do that? Uh, Fortunately, that is also fairly easy. Here, if I go ahead and uncheck this feature so I can go ahead and go back to a normal view, If you go to the Help menu and go to Help and Support to pull up our documentation, we actually have some really handy publication guidelines. So if I search for citing IPA or just citing, I can see that one of the top links is this IPA publication guideline. And this is where we're giving suggestions for what you would maybe need to put in your supplemental text for the particular method, uh, or also which original paper to uh, cite. And in this case, this would be uh, Stuart and uh, Andreas's original paper with Jack Pollard, uh, where they published IPA and bioinformatics. Awesome. So the final part of the presentation is where I wanna focus on using the network creation tools. And the reason that these tools are really fun is you don't actually have to have data to use them. So this is where using IPA, you can build any kind of network and identify any kind of connection and overlay potential changes. So for today's example, this is where I wanted to look at that HDAC1, LCN2, TP73 split decision to see whether or not those, in fact, might be up or down based on the directions predicted. And to answer that, I'm using the network build tools to grow uh, upstream and downstream of each of those proteins. Here. If you wanted to just create a network by searching for something, you can use the search bar at the top of IPA to look for your gene of interest or your chemical of interest and then check to add it to a pathway. Likewise, if you're interested in a particular disease, like here, I'm searching for atopic dermatitis, you can pick the most general or a very specific entry and add that disease or function to your network. Then, once you have this canvas with just your proteins or targets of interest, that's where you have access to the build tools to build or grow or even destroy parts of your network. And then you also have the overlay tools to add additional data, whether it's the results from an analysis or you want to simulate a change in activity. Finally, For any particular protein or network node, if you are curious about that gene or about that target, you can always right-click and view details. And if you do that, you'll also have the ability to pull up a report that describes not only how that particular gene of interest might interact with other proteins, but also links to our Omicsoft Land Explorer resources which if you happen to license them, this is really cool because you can go ahead and click on any of these links to look and see whether or not your gene of interest might have significant uh, changes in expression in public data. So here, what I want to do is first start with a fairly basic network. And this fairly basic network is going to be HDAC, EP73, and other ways that that might be connected to P10 and endometrial carcinoma. So, here, if I wanted to get this from scratch, I could go ahead and load the possible increasing upstream connections for our causal network. And then, when I add those paths, this is going to give me that TP73, that LCN2, that P10, and the endometrial carcinoma items. And at this point, one option is I could simply highlight these other things and just delete them. And by doing that, I now have a much simpler network that happens to already have the data associated with my study of interest. That's probably the fastest way to get started. However, if you wanted to, you can copy and paste network nodes. So for example, if you wanted to copy, you should be able to create a new pathway, which is going to give you a new blank canvas, and then you can paste items into that network. So in this case, I copied and I pasted TP73 into a blank canvas. Finally, the other place to look would be you can always search for your item of interest. Just remember that we have tabs for genes and chemicals, as well as for diseases and functions. So if you're interested in looking for endometrial carcinoma, you'll want to make sure to choose the disease tab before hitting search. And that will allow you to pull up this full hierarchy and identify the most general entry. In this case, this most general entry for endometrial carcinoma has some 6,000 associated connections. So this is definitely going to be the broadest connection that you could add to a pathway. But here, I have what I want, just by taking an existing network and deleting the items I wasn't interested in. So the next question that you might have is, well, if we are predicting a pattern of up, up, down, down, resulting in up, is that actually supported by the evidence within this data set? So let's start with just one of these proteins, hdac1. If I go to the build menu, this has a number of tools that I can use to modify this network, grow, will expand the network from a given point or whatever you have selected. Path Explorer lets you find the shortest paths between two potentially related items. And Connect just simply shows you additional knowledge connections between the items on screen. The item I want to use today is Grow. When I select Grow, this is going to let me choose a number of potential settings. And by default, it will allow me to pull every upstream or downstream item from this node. So to make things easier, I might only look upstream first. The other thing that I might do is I know that I'm currently only looking at evidence from my experiment. So rather than using every single potential gene known to us, I might instead want to limit this to molecules, genes or proteins that are present in a given analysis data set or list. So if I change that, I do have to click this option to find my data set. So this is where for this one, I do have to go to training analyses and then select P46. But this is going to help simplify our results by only considering things that were up or down in our experiment. So, without any other filters selected, you can see there are plenty of filters, each of them having a question mark. I am going to show every upstream item that happened to also be in this experiment. And I have HDAC1 selected. So here, I'm asking it to grow the graph. This has pulled all of the 166 potential upstream items. So if I unselect HDAC1, and I can do that by using the Control key on my keyboard, this is going to let me drag and move all of those upstream items just kind of up and out of the way. So again, these are upstream, so I'm throwing them above this. And then I can go ahead and select the same protein and look downstream. And all of the other settings are the same, so I can just apply. Just make sure that you have just that one item in question selected. Finally, to move, these items, before you click anywhere, while it's still selected, hold the control key and unselect HDAC1. And this will let you move this cloud easily below because it's a downstream target. It's also possible to do this for multiple items at the same time. So for example, if I select TP73, LCN, as well as P10, I can go ahead and get the downstream items from all three of these using just this one click. And here, you can see that some of these items actually overlap with each other. So here, what I'm just doing is I'm unselecting these three, just so I can go ahead and move these down like so. Likewise, if I want to, I can highlight these and look upstream of those selected items. And this is going to go ahead and provide me with a view of the potential items that are upstream And you can see I accidentally left P10 still selected, but that's okay. And finally, this is where I'm going to go ahead and go to the overlay tab, just so I can change the scale of the items that I added. So this is where I'll just go ahead and change this to say negative 20 to positive 20, just to make the reds and greens more obvious. And then to hide this pane, I can just click overlay again. And if I ever want to zoom in or out, I have the controls on the left, including this zoom to fit option. So what I've done is because I selected these from our existing data set, this is showing me all of the connections on screen and how they might be expected to influence these factors. So here, I can see all of the items upstream or downstream of HDAC1, TP73, LCN2, as well as P10. And I'm overlaying the actual expression changes. So if I wanted to focus individually on any one of these, this is where I can also manually use this molecule activity predictor to simulate a change. And this can be important because even though HDAC1 didn't actually change in our experiment, we might want to just check and see in a very quick manner, does it make more sense for this factor to increase inactivity or decrease inactivity? And something that you might notice is when this item is forced to be down, you tend to have more yellow connections in this network. Versus if it happens to be up, this just happens to be the native prediction state. And this is where you can also check to see is LCN2, even though it was observed to be down, you can also ask whether or not it makes more sense for it to be up or down based on the individual connections present. And something that might be clear is no matter what, TP73 seems to be an oddball in this network, in that it's not agreeing with the prediction for HDAC1, nor is it agreeing with the prediction for P10 based on the expression changes shown here. So, if I delete that from the network, or I can leave it in the network, either way, this is where I'm still seeing overall that the positive effect on endometrial carcinoma does seem to be maintained if we are looking at HDAC, LCN, as well as P10. So, this is just a few of the different ways that you can manipulate an existing network add additional information by building to find upstream or downstream targets, and by overlaying both real data from these experiments or predicted data, say you're creating a simulation with a molecule activity predictor. And with that, this is where, hopefully I've convinced you that this pattern is likely true, but it's unlikely for TP73 to be participating in this particular uh, example. So I can see that I am running slightly behind, but that hopefully covered everything that you wanted to see today. We discussed together how to look at uh, your upstream pathways uh, and how to prioritize your canonical pathway results by viewing a figure with both p-value and z-score through that volcano-style bubble chart. And then we also compared and contrasted mechanistic and causal networks. And finally, we used these network tools to go ahead and quickly test a hypothesis to see whether or not the observation and prediction that IPA made in its causal networks held up. And in this case, it's likely that three out of the four factors are moving in the direction that IPA predicted. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and stop here and see if there are any final questions for today's webinar.
0: Thank you so much, Kyle. So sharing in the chat box right now, I'm posting a link for a post training survey. So we'd love to get your thoughts about how today went as well as um, future trainings here. Uh, Another thing I'm gonna be posting in the chat is just one final link to the slides for today. So if you wanted to keep those in your back pocket for use later, um, they are there. So, for questions, um, one of the questions that uh, came up was when we're looking at the list of um, upstream regulators that might be important for a specific core analysis, some of those upstream regulators do not have accompanying uh, full changes listed. There was like holes kind of thing, you know, some of them were measured, some of them were not. Uh, Why are those, uh, why are some of them not have? Uh, full chains listed?
1: That's a great question. And that actually gets into one of the reasons that the upstream regulator analysis is one of my favorite uh, parts of IPA. When IPA is assigning Z-scores, IPA is asking whether or not it there is enough evidence to support an increase or a decrease in activity. And the bigger the z-score, the more confident that prediction. So you might have potential upstream regulators that influence a number of downstream factors, and we might be very confident about that change, but that upstream item might not change in our measured experiment. And that's where we get into, what are we measuring? So typically in IPA, you're measuring uh, RNA-seq, so transcript levels, uh, or possibly even some sort of mass spec protein level situation. However, many proteins change their activity, not based on the relative abundance of the protein, but perhaps it's post-translational modification state. Is your transcription factor of interest phosphorylated in your disease condition and unphosphorylated in the control? Or is there a translocation where you might have a particular regulatory factor chaperoned into the nucleus? These changes will never get detected by RNA-seq, but IPA can predict them based on how those downstream targets are changing. And because of that, those are potential targets that you could further study, especially if there is a very clear way to measure that activity change like you would expect from something that uh, is phosphorylated.
0: Awesome, thank you so much for that. Looks like there are no other questions in chat um, or in the Q&A box. Oh, is the recording sent to attendees after completing the post-training survey? Yeah, so you can um, click into Kyle's slides that were shared there's the link for um, the webinar that once we finish up this webinar, it'll actually be available on demand. So feel free to visit those um, links. Yeah, Kyle's showing it right now. So and if you guys have, oh, go ahead.
1: I was just going to remind you that uh, it will take a few hours for Zoom to finish processing the recording. But once that happens, that link will work just fine.
0: Exactly. All right, so there's no other questions in chat, so we'll stick around for a few more moments to get any last minute questions that might be coming in. But wanted to thank you so much, uh, first of all, to Kyle for this wonderful presentation, bringing us through all sorts of nitty gritty uh, with IPA, and then of course to the attendees. Thank you so much for spending uh, your time with us today.